This podcast is sponsored by Pictmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Pictmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Pictmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Pickmonic, you can study less, but remember more. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. I am joined this week by Dr. Kiswana Caves, better known as at TeenDocMD on Instagram. She is a pediatrician specialized in adolescent medicine, and she practices in Virginia. Dr. Kizzy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about some of the stuff that I enjoy about medicine. So thank you. Yeah, well, we finally tracked you down. I've been after you for about... Well, we've only been around two years. I've been tracking you down for two years to get you on the show. I know it's been a lot of uh, circling around, but sure. we're here. We're here. But but you're you're here now, and you're following <laughs> last week's guest, Dr. Wilton Triggs, who is also a graduate of Meharry. So yeah, go. that's right. Go Meharry. Yeah, we gotta get some more Howard folks uh, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've listened for a while, you know I like to kind of share people's stories and talk about how did you become a physician. I think there's so many folks out there that don't know where to start. Even though there is a lot of resources now, especially compared to years past when, when we were going through. So, Absolutely. Dr. Caves, let's start at the beginning and talk about when did you first decide that you wanted to become a physician? So my experience was a little biased in childhood because I had two professional parents. So my mom was a dentist, a Howard graduate. My dad was a pharmacist. And so... I knew that I wanted to do something within healthcare. I just didn't know that, well, I knew I just didn't want to be a dentist or a pharmacist. <laughs> so I guess by process of elimination, I kind of decided medicine may be for me, although I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I think I started out wanting to be like a neurosurgeon and clearly and very quickly that got <laughs> tamped down something more realistic for me anyway. Yeah. And and you went to undergrad at UT Knoxville. So what was your major? Oh, Lord. It was one of those long, I think it was called, abbreviated BCNB. So biochemical and molecular biology. Gotcha. Um, so all the, and, yeah, all the pre-med courses and, and that good stuff. Yeah, I did. I went the traditional route of doing science usually for a pre um medical person. And I just tried to do everything by the book. So I stayed with the science focus. I didn't have any majors, even though now I wish I had majored or minor, excuse me, in like a language or something, or maybe like African American studies. But I tried to stay focused on the science stuff. And I'm like, let me just get straight down the road. I wanted to just go <laughs> the path most traveled. <laughs> yeah. So in college, what was the hardest thing um, that you had to overcome in order to complete that uh, rigorous course of study? 
I think some of it was like moving out of my own way. If we're talking about like our own personal, like, <laughs> am I good enough? Mm. Uh, can I actually do this? Right. Um, if we're talking about actual like class hurdles, I feel like everybody had organic chemistry, which was <laughs> what they designated as the weeder, the medicine weeder. Yep. <laughs> but I also had supportive like cousins who were also kind of semi-focused on being professional. We were all the same age. So I went to college. They're older than me by like a couple months. So I was the youngest going in with them. One of them is a nurse now. The other is a pharmacist now. So like they were focused like me. So it was helpful to kind of have a group of like minded people um, because, you know, there was certainly the opportunity to go this way in college. Not that I didn't stray a little, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you talked about kind of getting out of your own way. And I think that's huge because something that I, too, had to struggle with. I think a lot of people, whether it's the imposter syndrome or self-doubt. Um, not having representation, whatever the case is, a lot of things mentally in addition mm -hmm. to the physical and the academic. And, you know, unfortunately, also some of the gaslighting that goes into being a Black person trying to get into a career where we are not the majority. I mean, there are a lot of people who I've talked to along the way, along this whole medicine journey that have had negative interactions with counselors and people who told them that they couldn't mm -hmm. do what they thought they were going to do. And it doesn't stop in college or medical school. <laughs> it exists even through training, even as an attending. So, you know, it's, it's part of the reason I'm so passionate about participating in platforms like the one that you have, because it's important that we all know that, you know, we aren't alone. Yeah. This wasn't some made up like experience, <laughs> like how we felt was valid, but we still persevered. And so I think that that's important for the younger generation to know that they can just they can do you can do whatever you want to do. Absolutely. There is a an entire body of folks out there that look like us that should have been physicians, but we're told yeah. they didn't make it. Yep. Um, and, and I think what you mentioned, having a platform because you, you have your platform as well on social media, teen.md. So for those students out there, if you're struggling and you're having problems with your guidance counselors, the people that are supposed to be helping you, you can reach out to folks like Dr. Kizzy or myself and we can take another objective look and say, hey, you know, work on this, do this differently, and we can actually help you make some of these tough decisions. Absolutely. And there are also like mentor groups like designated even with in our like friend group community that focuses on looking at CVs and stuff for people. So if you have questions, even if I can't help you, I can certainly connect you with people or entities that can. So please reach out. Beautiful. So if you're listening, if that's you, stop right now. Go to Instagram. You're probably on Instagram anyways. Uh, Teen.md. <laughs> Give uh, Dr. Dr. Kizzy a follow. Um, so as you finished up at undergrad, you started applying for medical schools. You ultimately went to Meharry Medical College. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Nashville? So when I took my MCAT for the first, I mean, not my MCAT. Was it my MCAT? No, not my MCAT. What was, what was the, yeah, it was the MCAT. Yeah, I took the MCAT for the first time, right? <laughs> That's what you take after, after college, right? We, we've suppressed <laughs> those traumatic uh, <laughs> memories. That's right. That's right. So I took my MCAT and I did terrible. I It had me questioning everything I had done and worked for the entire, like, you know, my whole life at that time. Right. 
And so I ended up like having to take some time to myself, maybe a few months to like be like, is this really what I want to do? Like, what's the other option? Can I go to DO school? Even though at the time there was such negative... I don't know. We've clearly, I think, over the years learned more about like how society sets things up, even trying to like create divides between what's an MD and what's a DO. Right. Is there a distinction? So at that time in 20, I don't know what time it was, 2008, I guess. Um, I'm like, oh, like, what do I do? What's next? Um, so my mom and my sisters, my siblings, my whole family kind of rallied around and just said, no, this is what you're doing. This is what you were called to do. Get back to it. Oh, right. Wow. I ended up taking up my MCAT the second time and did like significantly better. So I applied to Meharry. Um, I applied to Meharry because in my mind, I felt like I needed the rallying and the support that I feel like an HBCU would provide compared to a PWI. Because um, I'd done that. I'd done it in college and I survived, thankfully. <laughs> but... Uh, I wanted something different, something new, something I had not experienced. And that's what ultimately led me to Meharry because it wasn't so far away like the Howards or, you know, the other places that I felt like I didn't necessarily have family <laughs> close by because I'm from Memphis. Yeah. So Nashville is only about three hours away. And so that's how I ended up in Meharry ultimately. Yeah. And then as you were wrapping up medical school, you found your passion in pediatrics. So why pediatrics? Dude, I thought I was going to do so many different things um, before I like ended up in pediatrics. At first, I thought I was going to be like a nephrologist. Hmm. I had a couple of family members who had kidney disease. Um, and so it fascinated me. Um, and then all of the calculations of equations <laughs> related to <laughs> nephrology turned me off because I do not like math. Ugh, gross. So I was like, nope, not for me. Um, and to be frankly honest, as a young woman, medical student, grown men, taking care of grown men was, I think, 75% of the time inappropriate. Like the interactions, the mm. comments, the experiences. <laughs> and that started, you said, in medical school. In medical school. Like, you know, when you're shadowing people, you're going in, seeing patients. Like, there was a lot of just inappropriate commentary from men as you take care of them. And I just kind of decided, oh, is this what I want to have to endure <laughs> for the wow. rest of my quote unquote career? And I'm not saying that's the only thing, but it certainly was not a turn. It, it, it turned me off a little bit. Yeah, it didn't, and, didn't know, pull you towards it. <laughs> right. It did not. Neither did diabetic feet. So, I mean, all those things together. <laughs> That, that's interesting because, I mean, obviously we have different experiences in my experience as a man, a male in medicine, you know, we, I've seen the inappropriate behaviors and I, and I, I know that exists, but um, something to, to know that it does have quite a significant impact, even despite my best efforts in trying to help create a safe space. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, um, my female colleagues are always, you guys are always uh, going through more than, than people give you credit for. <laughs> Well, we appreciate that acknowledgement from you because. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved on from Meharry. You attended yeah. uh, pediatric residency at, mm -hmm. was it Virginia Commonwealth University? Yep. 
VCU in yeah. Richmond. <laughs> How was your transition to residency? Was it everything that you thought it would be? <laughs> I don't even know what I thought it would be, to be quite honest. I knew that it was going to be hard work. I knew that residents didn't sleep a lot. I knew that we would probably be overworked and underpaid. I So I think the experience was what it was. I do think that there was, although it didn't happen to me personally while I was in residency, I did get to see kind of the negative effects of hmm, racism, especially around some colleague or, or one of my like classmates, because there were ultimately four Black people in my class, um, which is probably the largest they've had. In, Out of how many? Um, maybe it was like 15, 16, and then... Medpeds added like four more, so 20-ish. Okay. Um, so that was probably the largest minority, well, Black minority applicants they had taken at one time. And so certainly there was a lot of nitpicking and poking and probably some gaslighting. But it is interesting to kind of look back and see that experience that I know so many of us have experienced throughout like medicine, just in general, being questioned about things, not being or having assumptions about who we are, um, which is usually everything except for the clinician. Um, having your your decisions being questioned by people or maybe like looking to someone else to just, you know, can you confirm, you know, that this right. is okay? Yeah, I'm looking for, cause did you see that recent tweet that went out from, uh, I think it was a former chairman. Oh, Ed Penn, yeah. yeah. Um, talks about that exactly, right? We, we have data that we've pulled that shows that Black uh, residents um, have more repercussions, have more adverse outcomes during residency. And this gentleman tweeted that, um, and the paper was entitled The Association Between Resident Race and Ethnicity and Clinical Performance Assessment Scores in Graduate Medical Education. And the conclusion they drew was that resident race and ethnicity was associated with assessment scores uh, to the disadvantage of underrepresented in medicine residents, that this may reflect bias in faculty assessment, effects of a non-inclusive learning environment, or structural inequities in assessment. So again, nothing that surprising to us, but this gentleman took that as an opportunity to tweet of the explanations provided, all are due to external agents. Could it be that they were just less good at being residents? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just it's hard to even like reply to stuff that you know is straight bullshit because it's like you don't create an environment that allows people to do their best work yeah but you expect all these things and then try to say gaslight and say like well you should have done you know it's like should have done better um and he, he effectively proved the the point of the paper that he was trying to critique so absolutely ah so and and that um as residents as we move forward you know realize that in academic medicine there's going to be folks that are advocating that saying hey we should look into all these reasons why black residents are being penalized aren't performing quote unquote as well as their peers and then there's going to be other people that are pushing back and saying, well, no, it's because of, their, of something intrinsic to them to them as Black people, uh, which is something that we encounter in medicine, in life, and, and you know, just 
what we deal with as Black people in America, it's no different, unfortunately, for, for those of us in healthcare. Yeah, things that have been looked at and disproven time after mm-hmm. time, but, you know, still comes up, so... Still comes up. So that's interesting. Yeah, your experience in residency, but you got through it. What were some of the, the harder rotations you went on as a pediatric resident? Oh, my goodness. Did I go on rotations? I feel like that was so long ago. I don't even remember. <laughs> um, so I did I, actually in residency, I did a lot of dermatology. Huh. I like discovered that, you know, if I had more... <laughs> more guidance in the beginning, I probably would have done dermatology. But I don't know that I had any super challenging like experiences in residency. I will say, you know, fortunately, I had a Black mentor who Mm. ended up being an adolescent medicine person. And she actually is one of the reasons why I ended up going to adolescent medicine fellowship training um, because she was fantastic. She trained at Hopkins for fellowship. And she gave me a lot of guidance about like why adolescent health is important, why we need more black doctors, <laughs> why you would be a good fit. Um, she helped me write my letters. She helped me get all my stuff oh, sent wow. out. She tried to use her contacts as best she could to get me interviews. So I owe a lot of kind of that base work of like getting me, getting exposure and then like helping me through that process to her because before that, I didn't even know adolescent medicine existed as a subspecialty, which I feel like is very common. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons <laughs> I, wanted, to say. I wanted you on the show so you could explain <laughs> that. But I'm a big fan of like when when the folks that have poured into us, we gotta we gotta shout them out. So what was what was her name? Yeah, Dr. Stephanie Crew. She's fantastic. She's still there, um, and I am actually uh, I I bother her a lot. She's still my mentor. <laughs> She's a great person. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. That's awesome. I, I guess we're both getting to that point where people that we've we've worked with in undergrad or whatever are starting to like get into medical school. I, I just had like my first big crop of students. I mentored uh, the summer medical dental enrichment program at Howard. And uh, this nice. year was like the biggest group, probably like five or six of those kids mm-hmm. that graduated medical school and went on. So like it's that incredible feeling of knowing that you inspired somebody to do something. So I'm sure she's incredibly proud of the position that you have become. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So which brings us to adolescent medicine. Can you explain this field? Hey, it's Steven, host of the Black Doctors Podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn. They are a sponsor of the Black Doctors Podcast, and we're thankful for them investing in our mission. TrueLearn is a company that specializes in test preparation. They provide a data-driven approach to help students prepare for their examinations. They provide resources for those in the medical licensure exam process, or the Comlex, the USMLE, and even for physician assistants. And they also provide resources for subspecialty exam prep. Specifically for those in medical school, they offer individual NBME subject exams, smart banks, and they cover the rotations that include neurology, emergency medicine, psychiatry, pediatrics, surgery, OBGYN, family medicine, and internal medicine. Eight different subspecialties. As a special bonus for those of you that listen to the show, TrueLearn is offering a discount. To receive that discount, visit their website. When you sign up for one of their products, use the code BDPODCAST, so Black Doctors Podcast. There's also going to be a link in the show notes. Check that out. Everybody loves saving money. And now let's get back to today's episode. 
adolescent medicine. Can you explain oh. this field? Yeah, so adolescent medicine is, I guess it's a newer field. And I say newer in a sense of like relatively new. So it was actually discovered or whatever you want to call it in the 70s. So like the first adolescent medicine fellowship program started in the 70s. And it is usually uh, a subspecialty of pediatrics, although it can you can become an adolescent medicine specialist from any medical specialty. So family medicine, med peds, or internal medicine. Hmm. Um, I, had a co- I had two co-fellows. One of them was family medicine and the other one was med peds, which I always find interesting because she's clearly triple boarded. And it's like you went literally to the extremes of each. <laughs> just to land in the middle. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you can do it from any uh, medical subspecialty or specialty. And it's a fantastic field of medicine because it really touches on every single subspecialty that you can think of. Hmm. Adolescent medicine um, specialists probably take care of patients within that within that diagnosis or within that field. So for instance, um, one of my colleagues, Rebecca Fenton, she's fantastic. Another Alice in Medicine doc up in New York. She like put together this Venn diagram thing on Instagram the other day. I don't know if you can see it. I'm going to see if you can see this iPad right here. Oh yeah. But. Oh, you came prepared. It, okay. Yeah, I see the well, ring light. It's cool. I know my ring light is blocking the, the screen, but it's cool because you can see how like, so, for instance, if this is like general peds, so we do primary care. Yeah. Um, if you see dermatology, we take care of patients with acne, infectious disease. So there's a role in HIV medicine. There's a role in HIV prevention with the use of PrEP. Sports medicine has a role in adolescent health. Um, we do a lot of reproductive health stuff, gynecology, endocrinology, when we talk about like conditions like PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, when we talk about helping teenagers through gender affirming medical treatments, um, Mm. when we do a lot of psychiatry, mental health stuff. So outside of the typical anxiety, depression, ADHD, we're also taking care of eating disorder patients, which also fall within that scope of um, a mental health diagnosis, at least for this time being. Um, so we do a lot of things. We have our hands in a lot of pots. And although you may not necessarily, as an adolescent specialist, do all that your entire career, usually your training sets you up to be able to have the knowledge and expertise in all of that stuff when you finish. So. For people who are interested in doing training, I do think it's important that you kind of research. There's only about 26 programs around the country. Okay. Um, so it's just a handful. Most of them are concentrated in like the the East, like the Midwest, the West, and then it's like one or two in the South. And so some programs focus on some things more than others. So if you kind of go in knowing what your interests are, then you can kind of pick a program that may cater to that a little bit more. So for instance, Chicago's program really focuses on HIV medicine, the program I was at in DC, HIV medicine, which is what I did a lot of in fellowship. But if you have no interest in that, you may want to find a program that does more broad things, right? So I know Texas was one I looked into, but they focused a lot on eating disorders and sports. Yeah. Um, and no gender care. Right. Um, you know, and that's so... the, no, not at all. 
<laughs> and so, you know, it wasn't necessarily a great fit for me, but there is opportunity to kind of figure out what it is you like and then try to find a program that will help you get to your goals. So fantastic. So what does your practice look like now? My practice right now is interesting. So traditionally, adolescent specialists usually do primary care and then they also do specialty care. So the the one of the huge components of, of the primary practice is being able to take on chronic disease patients. So like complex care patients, patients in wheelchairs, patients who need extra support. Transition medicine also is a big part of adolescent medicine too. Like how do we get you to being a functioning adult within the medical system so that you know what you're doing and can like be on top of your healthcare when you get to become uh, an adult and transition to the adult medicine paradigm where they probably aren't going to call you as much as (laughs) pediatricians do. Yeah. So, um, so that's a big part of kind of that, the field as well. But I, right now, um, only do specialty care. So I don't do any primary care. I don't see asthma. I don't do any of the traditional like primary care stuff. Um, I have a huge population now that focuses on reproductive health because unfortunately a lot of the pediatricians in my current community aren't necessarily comfortable or interested, or I'm not sure the reason, in um, doing reproductive health care. So I do a lot of that. I also do gender health. Um, I do that in collaboration with one of our endocrinologists here. So um, getting patients, at least for my aspect, I don't provide gender affirming hormones right now, but I do kind of go through the process with families and kind of get them connected to other services they need in order to get to that next step. And then my endocrine colleague, for now at least, is the one who starts the medication Hmm. for for gender-affirming care. Although I have done gender-affirming treatments, like in fellowship. This is is a dumb question. No questions are dumb. Reproductive care. So, I mean, what does that look like for... For teenagers? I I guess, um, I mean, I don't really mess with (laughs) kids at all. So (laughs) I'm the furthest thing from a pediatrician. Yeah. So that could be many things. So when we're talking about um, people who are assigned female at birth, right, we're talking Mm -hmm. about periods, period health. So if we have dysfunctional periods, periods that keep us out of school, painful, vomiting, whatever. Um, When we're talking about using birth control to manage and treat those conditions versus using birth control mm -hmm, to prevent pregnancy, which... I honestly think birth control needs a new name. It has so much negative stigma around, you know, yeah, birth. <laughs> when, when we use it so often, especially in teens, to treat medical conditions, acne, to treat bleeding disorders, to treat like heavy bleeding during periods, painful periods, like irregular periods. Like there's so many medical uses for the medicine. Yeah. Um, but as soon as you say birth control, it's like, oh, no, I will not. So that's what it looks like for, for people assigned female at birth. For people assigned male at birth, we're typically just doing kind of STI management um, or testing screening services. And then, you know, also when I was a primary care doctor, I don't see a lot of males, unfortunately, because when you're not doing primary care, you don't see a lot of... <laughs> 
police in the clinic. They don't come for things because they don't, you know, they don't have monthly periods that may bother them and keep them out of school. So um, it's harder to get them in as a specialist unless they're coming for screening for STDs or substance concerns, substance use concerns, things like that, or, you know, gender, gender health stuff. I do see a couple of of male patients um, related to kind of HIV prevention, et cetera. So that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> I told you. Did you not see my Venn diagram? I did. I did. I saw the Venn diagram, but when you put it out, they're realizing, like, I mean, I know when I was a teenager, man, you know, you're just, you're just kind of in a weird spot. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, but you know what's funny though? It's because that, that's why adolescent medicine is so important. So it's, it's siloed off kind of like geriatrics is for adult right. medicine, right? own like population of patients. But it's important because for a lot of pediatricians, like once you're not a cute little giggling baby or toddler, like a lot of pediatricians are like, ugh, teenagers. It's the same way as society does this. Kind of like, uh, kind of left to your own devices. And it it is a breeding ground for like terrible decisions, (laughs) uninformed you know, decisions, especially when schools aren't willing to talk about sexual health, aren't willing to discuss what healthy and unhealthy relationships are, when there's so much like controversy around topics that should just be normal conversations, even like talking about confidentiality in the healthcare setting with teenagers, allowing teenagers to make decisions about certain things or certain aspects of their healthcare has controversy. Yeah. Like I think you're like you get used to it as an adolescent medicine person because it's it's always something. It's always something where someone's questioning, you know, is this the right thing we should be doing? And of course, we should always be thinking about that. But, you know, history has told us that there are certain pieces of care where allowing confidentiality provides an open space for teenagers to tell us the truth. And unfortunately, they may not feel that way about their parents at the time that we're having that conversation. They may not feel that way about whoever their guardian is or trusted adult. So my role in that is trying to just provide a space where if these things are coming up, I can give them genuine education, not stuff they saw on TikTok, not stuff they saw on YouTube, not stuff their friends who are the same age and have no experience are sharing, (laughs) but they can get some information and hopefully apply it until a point where parents create a space where they where their teens feel comfortable talking to them sometimes it's just not safe so they don't do it so i don't know those are some of the things i love about i love the controversy (laughs) god well i'm I'm glad they have uh you as an advocate truly to kind of save generations of kids that would otherwise you know end up in a much worse place without you to treat them and provide care and advocate for them. And hopefully as society continues to progress, we can do better by our kids. I truly hope so. And that's why I'm like, I'm like pushing my school. I'm like, let's like try to move up the rotation, you know, for adolescents, because unfortunately a lot of them happen when you get into pediatrics or whatever your residency is, a lot of the exposure to adolescent health doesn't happen until the second year. Well, match is the second year. So you really only get like this six month window where you make a decision where, you know, everything else you've seen since the beginning, your ICUs, your 
whatever, your other um, subspecialties. And so I'm like, no, we need more providers. We need to like open up a window so they can have more experience here. Otherwise, they're like you. I'm like, no, I wouldn't look at it. So. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. You are truly doing the Lord's work. Um, anesthesia is a lot easier than it sounds like what you, you do at work. Um, let's, let's, uh, uh, as we kind of start to wrap up, I want to, you know, to have a conversation about a topic that comes up pretty frequently on Twitter, on social media, kind of involves social media. And that is the concept of professionalism in medicine if you're watching the video um, or if you're listening to the podcast, whether you are missing out because you don't get to see Dr. Kizzy's uh, amazing, beautiful, blonde locks. <laughs> um, she locked her hair a couple years ago and, and it looks fantastic. I grew locks in residency. I freeformed for a couple years and then joined the Navy and shaved my head. And now I'm somewhere in between and hope to have my locks again soon. <laughs> So, Dr. Kizzy, <laughs> what was your experience, um, you know, locking your hair? Did you have people talk about professionalism and, and express any concerns or, or hate uh, towards that? So not when I started my locks. And I think probably um, it was because of when I started, which was really at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think that there was so much focus on so many other things that, like, who cares about Dr. Caves here? Um, <laughs> however... <laughs> I will say that we notice an issue. They put out a whole like crown act to discuss how wow. people have weaponized black hair against us and try to use it and say that it's not professional unless it's worn a certain way when no other ethnicities have anything of the sort, you know, attributed to what they can and cannot do. And so I certainly heard a lot of that professionalism talk, more so like in med medical school. Yeah. I had a couple of friends in medical school who had locks and we're like, oh, no, you're going on an interview with locks. Oh, no, you're going to have to shave that off. One of them in particular, I remember refused. He just refused. He still has his locks. They're like down his butt now um, at this point, but like refused to do it. I'm like, why? You're not going to get a job. What's going to happen? And like he stayed true to himself and he still has his locks and kudos to him. But there's definitely that negative connotation surrounding certain types of hairstyles and what's considered professional. And we know that professionalism was not assigned by minority yeah. <laughs> people. Yeah. Those, those, those in power. Correct. So like what that means Apparently, it looks different to different people. But, you know, I am trying to be true to myself. No one has come to me about anything. It, unless my hair looks like not neat, which is could be the only thing, I guess, that you could say to me that would be like, which that never happens. So there would, in my opinion, never be a reason for you to come and say something about what my hair looks like, because what does that have to do with? anything that I have going on. Yeah. Now, if I have a tattoo on my face, that may be something different. I have tattoos in other places. I think tattoos also kind of have been part of that questionable professionalism uh, conversation. I have several tattoos. Right now, they're all kind of in hidden places. I did that by design. Uh, but I'm thinking about getting one on my arm and on the back here that will completely be visible if I wear short sleeve scrubs to work. 
Um, and I think that they can be done and still be professional. So times are changing. Yeah. People need to get with the time. Yeah. And, and it's such a complex issue. Like you mentioned, there's there's the, the piercings, there's the tattoos, there's the hair. and I know. I have a nose ring, too. <laughs> and like... <laughs> That is also, so, yeah, should um, you wear a ring? Should you wear a stud? Uh, coming out of, it, it's interesting, coming out of Meharry, coming out of Howard, even though these are historically black universities, you'll still get both conversations. You need to look a certain way when you apply to residency or be true to yourself. And it just speaks to how complex an issue it, this is and how there are different opinions. I think the older population, the older generations clinging to that professionalism Old school, image. That's yeah. what we call them. Yeah, that's right. The clean cut. But they had that's but that's based on their experiences. Mm-hmm. The experiences that they had during that time in their lives and even up until, you know, recently, have molded the need to kind of fit don't stand out. Yeah. To fit inside the box. Because there are plenty of other reasons for them to take dings <laughs> right. at you. Don't make it be, you know, this issue, right? For for folks navigating it. And I found it, you know, at different points in your life, it is a bigger issue. So when you're applying for medical school, you're going to have to face that, you know, somebody's going to be like, yo, you need to look a certain way. And you have to kind of, I've, I've reduced it down to kind of a, a personal decision, obviously, like what's, yeah. what do you prioritize? Some people will say, well, if the school doesn't want me there with my locks, then I don't want to be there anyways. Um, and that's like a completely valid way to approach it for some people. Some people like myself were like, well, let me just shave my hair real quick and get in the door and I'm going to grow my hair back. But yeah, it's a a personal decision. I agree. And I think that, you know, as as time goes on and and we learn more and we hopefully are doing better, that it will become less of an issue. But yeah, times are changing and those things don't have really anything to do with your capability, your ability, you as a physician, your ability to take care of patients, have bedside manner. So, you know, what should we really be focusing on? Yeah, absolutely. And and my tattoos, like, so I, I was intentional about my tattoos being, you know, pretty not visible when I was wearing scrubs. Because for me, mm-hmm. I just didn't want that to, to be out there, especially not at that point in my life. Um, sure. And it's been something that I've had to work on, you know, from medical school on, because we have these biases that are kind of drilled in from the perception of what professionalism is to be like, yeah, I really don't care what anybody else does. You know, if you want tattoos on your neck, on, you know, sleeves, you know, whatever, it it does not speak to the quality of care you're able to provide as a physician. Right. No, I totally agree. Love it. So hopefully I'll get my locks twisted uh, in the near future. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get them. I don't know if blonde's my color, so... Do it, do it. <laughs> awesome. Well, and on the same vein of professionalism, as we as we truly wrap up, um, Dr. Kizzy, you are active on social media. So what is your, your goal on Instagram? So my goal on Instagram is honestly to share parts of my life and then also be an educator, which I have found to be kind of a weird space, a space that I'm like actively in the middle of pulling back from because the space, you know, it comes again with like stress and controversy when you're talking about certain topics that are not, you know, necessarily for everybody. Um, And so I've been trying to find a balance, truly trying to find a balance between what I share 
um, with the masses, what I share between just my friends, green bubble, close friends only. And then, <laughs> and then what I put out as content, because um, I truly think it's important that teens and their parents have the information you know, have reliable resources to find information in regards to things that are really relevant during puberty, during adolescence, during that time where there's so much change happening with your mind, your body, your peer groups, your schools, like that time is chaotic. And so I think that (laughs) it's helpful to be able to have resources at your fingertips, at your disposal. And I'm not the only adolescent medicine person on Instagram. There are tons of us out there. Probably when you click on one page, you'll just fall down the rabbit hole of all the other (laughs) people who are being followed or who we follow. Um, So I encourage everybody to go look into what adolescent medicine is. If you are in a city, um, because sometimes, unfortunately, adolescent medicine practices are in larger cities. Yeah. And so if if you have the ability to be seen or close to an adolescent medicine specialist, then check them out. Go see what the what the clinic is about. Go see what the doctors are about. I do think that it is worthwhile experience for teenagers to be able to have an adolescent medicine provider. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Kizzy, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for uh, sharing your journey into medicine and talking about the incredible field of adolescent medicine and um, obviously the candid conversation on professionalism and how we we hopefully are pushing the limits and, and breaking down those boundaries that have been in place for so long. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for having me again. Awesome. Well, join us next week on the podcast because representation matters. Bye. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast, because representation matters.